You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Uh, Just to reorient you uh, back to Ezekiel, uh, we're going to look at an outline in a moment. But notice the title of the, the, uh, the study tonight. Turning your back on God. Now, if, if I decided to preach the sermon tonight with my back turned to you, that would be a bit disconcerting, right? But even more so if you turned your back on me. If I'm trying to communicate to you and you turn your back to me, that would communicate something to me that you are, are interested in the message or the messenger. Well, we're going to see tonight that God's people at a time in their history, by and large, had, had decided to turn their back to God. They weren't interested in His message. They weren't interested in His messengers. They weren't interested in what He had to say or what He thought. They had turned their back to God. I want you to see what the spiritual condition looks like uh, there in Ezekiel chapter 8 and the following Chapters, But just to remind you kind of how this book unfolds, if you look there in your notes under the outline, it begins in chapters 1 through 3 by looking at the prophet's call. So we've talked a lot about Ezekiel's kind of unorthodox call into the prophetic ministry. If you remember, uh, there was a time in Israel's history where God judged his people through the Babylonian Empire. He allowed the Babylonians to come into Uh, Jerusalem and uh, Judah and decimate uh, the people living there. Uh, They destroyed uh, towns, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and they took many of the um, Jews back to Babylon with them into captivity. And it was just a very dark time in the nation of Israel. Well, Ezekiel was a priest who was taken into Babylon. So he's in Babylon, in captivity, far away from home, and God calls him to be a prophet, to speak to the people who were in captivity, to speak to the Jews who were there living in Babylon. So we see that call unfold in chapters 1 through 3. And then the message emanates from Ezekiel, from God through Ezekiel, and it begins with a message of judgment for Jerusalem and Judea. So if you notice, that's chapters 4 through 24. So right now, we're looking at these messages of judgment for Jerusalem and Judah, God's people. So we'll talk about that some tonight in chapters 8 through 11. The third part of the outline uh, is um, or consists of messages for foreign nations. This is God's message to other nations besides Israel Uh, Messages of judgment for their rebellion. And then the fourth part speaks of uh, or shares a message for the people uh, there in Babylon after the fall of Jerusalem. So uh, a a lot of Ezekiel's preaching is looking toward the fall of Jerusalem. It has not happened yet as, as the, the portion of the book we are in. 
but it was coming. And so we see a message after the fall of Jerusalem in chapters 33 through 39. And then there's a vision of hope and restoration in chapters 40 through 48. So that's a really broad outline that we're kind of working our way through. And here's a summary statement just to kind of give you just a kind of a snapshot into what the book of Ezekiel is about. This comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. He was a New Testament professor that I uh, had in, in, in my seminary days. He writes, From exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so that they shall know that I am the Lord. The, the, the foundational um, thrust of these messages is uh, to let his people know uh, I am the Lord. God wants them to know he is the Lord. He is the one true God. And so that's behind all of these messages that Ezekiel preaches. Now, before we get into Ezekiel chapter 8, I want, to, I want us to, to back up to a very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, which is going to serve sort of as a backdrop for understanding the rebellion of the Jews. So hold your place there, but turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, second book in the Bible. We're going to look at the first couple commandments in the Ten Commandments. Exodus Chapter 20, I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. These are the, the commandments that God gave his people when they were gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai after their deliverance from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, first commandment, the Lord says, You shall have no other gods before me. That's pretty clear, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Don't worship other gods. Don't trust other gods. Don't uh, turn to other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. And then look in the next verse, second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Remember that. He's a jealous God. He's jealous for our worship because he's the only one worthy of worship. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So remember those two foundational commandments, first two in the ten. No other gods before me, no graven images that you bow down to and worship. Everybody got that? So just remember those, kind of place them in a, in a file in your mind because it's going to help us to understand just how egregious the rebellion of the Jews was. Now, go back to me with me to uh, Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. This section really unfolds under two different headings, two different Headings. He had already uh, condemned the people's idolatry in the previous chapters, uh, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. We talked about that last time we studied the book of Ezekiel. And so we saw how serious idolatry is. Uh, and an idol is something you put above God, that you trust above God, that you love above God, that you pursue above the one true God. And so the, the Jews were guilty of idolatry. If we're not careful, we can be guilty of idolatry. And we talked about that last time we studied Ezekiel. But we're going to see a little bit more specific, uh, in a more specific way, just 
the level of idolatry among the Jews who were still in Jerusalem. So remember, the Babylonians came in three different waves. First wave, they took a group of Jews back with them. Second wave, took another group of Jews back with them. And this is where Ezekiel is, uh, speaking to the Jews in Babylonian captivity. There were still Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, There's coming a time when the Babylonians will go back and destroy the entire city, destroy the temple. But this is before that time. This is kind of probably between the second and third wave of the Babylonian um, uh, oppression of the Israelite people. And so we're going to see just, again, just how advanced the the idolatry of God's people uh, was, particularly in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. So this passage, chapters 8 through 11, unfolds under two headings. The first is uh, the great abominations, the great abominations. And secondly, we'll look at Yahweh's response. So the great abominations of God's people and then Yahweh's response. So the great abominations. Now this section, starting in chapter 8, begins with the journey. That's in your notes, the journey. And look what it says back in chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year of the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house, this is Ezekiel talking, with the elders of Judah sitting before me. Now that phrase, the elders of Judah sitting before me, might indicate that after some, of, after some time had passed, Ezekiel would preach some messages The people are starting to listen to him a little bit. So the elders are there in his house listening to him or sitting there in his house. He says, As I was sitting there, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire. Above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Uh, This description lines up accurately with the end of Ezekiel chapter 1, where uh, during his first vision by the river Kibar, the canal uh, of the Kibar River, he sees this man of spectacular appearance. I told you back then when we studied chapter 1 that I believe this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. All right, This is the second person of the Trinity. So Jesus here is, is coming to him, uh, because he has a message that he wants to give him. So look what happens next. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. That's interesting, kind of picked him up by his hair, right? And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions, not literally, but in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes the jealousy, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. So Jesus appears, and Jesus is going to take him by way of vision to see what's happening in Jerusalem, to see what's happening in the temple, in the the court surrounding the temple. Daniel Block, Old Testament scholar, says it like this, by means of supernatural visions, he is transported, Ezekiel, is transported across the Arabian desert to Jerusalem where he is deposited within the temple compound. So he wants Ezekiel to see some things. And look at kind of the first thing that Ezekiel sees there in um, verse 3. It says, He brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. So he's, he's, he's entering the temple complex here. 
and says, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy? So there is this, there is some sort of image there, that word image could be translated statue there, and it's a statue that, that um, pays homage to a false god, a god other than the one true god. And so it calls this statue the image of jealousy because it provokes God to jealousy because they're giving the worship that only belongs to God to this false pagan god. And so that's the first thing that he sees. He takes this, this journey by way of vision to the city of Jerusalem. So we see the journey in verses 1 through 4. But then we see the tour. The Lord's going to take him on a little tour around the temple complex uh, to show him just how idolatrous the people were. And the tour in chapter 8 unfolds in four different scenes. I want to walk you through these different scenes. Scene number one is the sculptured image. The sculptured image. Look what it says in verse 5. Son of man, lift up your eyes toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, uh, behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. He said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will still see greater abominations. So he's saying, it's at the gate, you're entering the temple complex, and bam, there's a statue there, an image of Jealousy. It's the first thing you see when you walk into uh, the temple. Can you, can you imagine if, as you walked into the sanctuary on a Sunday morning to worship, if we had at each entrance uh, some sort of, of, of pagan image? Uh, can you imagine how disconcerting that would be and how disrespectful it would be to the Lord to, to have that as you walk into the place of worship? So even at the very entrance, in the, the outer courtyards, there's this sculptured image which worships a false god. We don't know much more about it other than it provoked the Lord to jealousy because they were giving to this sculptured image, this statue, uh, the worship that only belongs to the one true God. So that's scene number one. Scene number two, we see the graven images. The graven images. Now look what it says in verse 7. Because he said in verse 6, you see this? It gets worse. You'll see greater abominations. Look in verse 7. It says, he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see, here it is, the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw. And there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, uh, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. You know, incense is a common way that different religions worship. And, and usually incense, in the Bible, incense represents the prayers of God's people. But they were using incense here as an act of worship to these pagan gods. Each one of the 70 had their own censer, their own... Um, box that burned incense. Then he said to me, verse 12, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Now look at this next phrase. Each in his room of pictures. Each in his room of pictures. So this probably indicates within a large space, 
each of the 70 um, uh, elders, it says there, uh, so these are leaders. These are leaders in, among the Israelites. Each of the 70 elders, probably leaders of families or, or tribes or groups, they had their own booth. It calls it their room of pictures. They had their own little booth. And within that booth, there were graven images. And they're burning incense. And they're worshiping whatever gods are represented on those graven images. So you can imagine, this is at the temple complex. This is where Yahweh uh, makes his presence known to his people. This is where people come to worship the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But here are these 70 leaders. They're gathered in this big space, and they have these little booths that are dedicated to worshiping false gods. These, again, are the elders. These are the leaders of Israel. So there are these graven images. So it's, it's really, really bad. But look what they're saying in verse 12. They're each in the room of pictures, and they say, The Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. So here's their mindset. Now watch this. God sent judgment, and because we rebelled against him, and God's not really watching what we're doing. He's already sent his judgment, so we can basically do what we want. God's not really paying any attention to us now. So listen to this. When they were judged by God and underwent the 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 decimation that came from the Babylonian Empire. Instead of repenting and getting right with God, they just went farther away from God. And you know that can happen, right? When God sends judgment on a nation, the nation can first of all say, okay, Lord, you've got our attention. We're on our knees. We're calling out to you. We are turning to you because we know we need you. But also, when God sends judgment, a nation can just move farther away uh, from the Lord. I'll never forget, early on in the COVID pandemic, there was an article, and I think it was CNN, it was online, and um, someone in a government position, I can't remember exactly what the government position was, but someone in a government position said that um, this, this COVID pandemic has brought our nation to its knees. And he wasn't talking about prayer. He was just talking about the hardship that is caused in in, in our nation. And I thought, oh, I wish it would have. I wish it would have brought us to our knees, to our knees in prayer. So instead of the Israelites going to their knees in prayer and repentance and getting right with God, they just go farther away from God. They say, well, God's not watching us anyway. He's, he's judged us. He's forsaken us. So we're going to just worship false gods. And that's how bad it had gotten the graven images. Scene number three, we see the weeping women. The weeping women. Look back in verse 14. Weeping women. So in verse 13 he said, this is bad, but you'll see greater, you'll see greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Weeping for Tammuz. Now who in the world was Tammuz? The best we can figure... Uh, and I say we, I mean Old Testament scholars, so I'll say the best they can figure, and I read what they had to say. Uh, the best Old Testament scholars can figure is Tammuz was a Sumerian deity, okay? a false god, a pagan god. Uh, this deity can be traced back to an antediluvian, that means before the flood, uh, a very ancient shepherd king of Sumeria. So there was apparently some figure in Sumerian history that was a shepherd and who was a leader of his people. And over time, 
this person became legendary and the stories that revolved around that person turned into mythology. And this person became a god that they worshipped. His name was Tammuz. In, in the Sumerian mythology, Tammuz died and was now in the nether world. So when it says they're, they're weeping for Tammuz, there was probably a, a, a cycle of, of worship that took place, uh, uh, maybe a commemoration of Tammuz's death and transition into the, the nether world. And so they're, they're, they're celebrating the mythology surrounding this false god. They're weeping for the death of Tammuz, is what, is what they're doing here. And Tammuz is not even a real god. He's a false god, a pagan god. And the women there are weeping over this false god. Probably, this is probably an annual cycle of worship. And uh, the Lord says, look, here are these women not weeping over the people's rebellion against me. They're weeping for this false god, this god named Tammuz, this Sumerian pagan deity. But look what he says in the next verse. Verse 15, have you seen this, O son of man? And he says it again, you will see still greater abominations than these. In other words, it gets worse. So think about what we've seen so far. A statue right when you enter the temple complex with graven images. You see the elders, 70 elders with little booths and burning incense to worship false gods. You see women weeping over Tammuz, but it gets worse. Look at scene number four. Scene number four is the sun worshipers. The sun worshipers. Look what it says in verse 16. He brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. So they're approaching the, 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 the complex where there was the holy place and the holy of holies. Outside of the holy place was the, the uh, altar and the, the, the basin of, of water where the priest would wash. So they're approaching the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, the place where you'd go into the holy place, where God would manifest his presence among his people, the holy place, the holy of holies. It says, between the porch and the altar, so they're getting close to the holy place, between the, 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 the portico and the altar where they would burn uh, uh, sacrifices. It says, we're about 25 men, probably priests, probably priests, 25 men, um, now look at this next phrase. With their backs to the temple of the Lord. So remember, when Solomon led in building this, this beautiful temple structure, right? Permanent structure to house the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? And they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies, which was covered by a veil. And over the Ark were, were these two cherubim, these golden cherubim, their wings touching one another. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of God came down to rest over the Ark of the Covenant. This was God making his presence known among his people. The, the, the Shekinah glory of God fell on this place. And so the, the, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, was God's way of saying, I am with my people. It was the place where God would manifest his presence. What are these 25 men doing? They're turning their back to where God manifests his presence. See that? Look what it says. It says, their backs to the temple, uh, verse 16, and their faces toward the east, looking away from the holy place, the holy of holies, worshiping what? What's it say there? The sun. 
Romans 1 tells us, here's the problem with humanity. God has created the universe, and over time, humanity has turned to worship the creation more than the creator. And that's what they're doing here. They're worshiping the sun. Very common in different cultures, worship of the sun. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? It is too light to think the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here. They should fill the land with violence, provoke me still further to anger. And so, so what is the Lord saying here? He's saying these 25 um, probably priests or some type of leaders, they have turned their back to me. By turning their back to the temple, they are symbolically turning their back to me. But listen to this. This outward act of turning their back to God was an outward reflection of what was in their heart. In their heart, they'd already turned their back to God. In their heart, they've already chased pagan deities and false gods and, and ignored the messages and the warnings that the one true God had to say. So in their heart, they'd only tur- they already turned away from God. Now they're just manifesting it outwardly. Their, their actions are lining up with what was in their heart. And, and, and this, this outward worship ref- showed up in their actions. When people turn away from God, uh, then they pursue a lifestyle that is antithetical to God's will and way. Because look what it says there. It says, uh, verse, um, verse 17, he said, Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here in the temple, that they should... Uh, fill the land with violence, provoke me still further to anger. Uh, interesting phrase. So not only were they involved in worshiping the sun, they were involved in evil deeds. They were involved in, in violence and oppression and injustice and had filled the land with ungodly things. He says, they're provoking me still to anger. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. There's some debate over exactly what that phrase means. It's kind of a, an old phrase, and there's not a lot of clarity over exactly what it means, but it's, it's something like, they've disrespected me, is, 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 is what the Lord is saying there. And so, these, these, these 25 were worshipers of the sun. That's scene number four. So, let's back up for a minute. Chapter 8 is a, an overview of by way of vision, for Ezekiel to see the great abominations of God's people happening in Jerusalem, happening at the temple, unfolding in four different scenes. But I want to close by looking at Yahweh's response. How does Yahweh respond to this, this rampant idolatry taking, a place, uh, taking place among his people? We see three responses very quickly. Number one, the destructive wrath of God. The destructive wrath of God. And look in chapter 9. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice. This is the Lord, I believe, pre-incarnate Christ. He cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now these... 
These six men are probably angels, okay? Uh, angels that are carrying out his bidding of bringing his wrath and destruction against his people. Uh, the man clothed in linen is probably another angel who's sort of the leader of this. The linen represents purity, maybe the purity of God's judgment against the, the impurity of the people. And he's kind of overseeing the entire thing because he has a writing case. He's maybe taking note, keeping track of what's happening. It says in verse 3, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In other words, there was a faithful remnant in the city. There were people who were not worshiping false gods and who were brokenhearted that God's people were. So he says, go through and mark them. Okay, They're people of faith. They're people who follow me. Mark their foreheads. And it says... To the others, he said, in my hearing, pass through the city after him, strike. Your eye shall not spare, you shall show no pity, kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house, fill the courts with the slain, um, go out. And they went out and struck in the city, and while they were striking, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Oh, Lord God! Will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? In other words, Ezekiel sees God's wrath. And he says, no one can stand in the day of your wrath. And look what it says next. He said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, the city full of injustice. For they said, the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. The Lord doesn't care what we're doing here. We can do our own thing. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back words saying, I've done as you commanded. He's keeping track of this judgment. This is a heavy passage. The Lord had had enough. He's a merciful, patient, forbearing God. But they had crossed a line with their idolatry and their pagan worship. So he sends his angels through the city to destroy, to bring judgment. You think, this is really, really heavy. I mean, wow, I've never thought about God like this. Well, have you read the story of Noah's Ark? You know, Noah's Ark, you know, we and I'm guilty of this, we use it for our baby's nurseries. Right When we had Cameron, man, we used Noah's Ark. We had Noah's Ark blankets and pillows, and we painted little animals by twos on the wall, and it was different colors, and it was really cute. I mean, you think about Noah's Ark. Uh, Noah and his family made it through. Everyone else was destroyed. Right? It's kind of a scary story. It's, it's not really a, a childhood story. You might tell the story about Noah and the Ark and the rain and the animals to your little kid, but you won't say, and everyone else died by drowning. Or, you know, you mean, it's, it's a heavy story. So, so certainly there is a time when you can cross a line in the heart of God and he sends his judgment. After merciful warning, after merciful warning, after patience, he will certainly judge. And so we see here the, the destructive wrath of God. And let me just say, his wrath is terrifying. And that should remind us why it's so important that we have a Savior. So we don't have to endure His wrath. So we can be saved from His wrath. In fact, did you know that when Jesus died on the cross, He was taking the wrath of God for you? 
He took the, all this, 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 this wrath and fury against sin and immorality and abomination. Jesus took it for you and for me. He died on the cross absorbing the wrath of God. The, the theological word is propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God. So that if you place your faith in Christ, embrace him as your Lord and Savior, the wrath of God has been paid for. Jesus took it all. And you don't have to experience the wrath of God. But notice here, his wrath is a terrifying reality. And if people die and they step into eternity before a holy God, apart from Christ, they'll experience his wrath forever and ever and ever and ever. So we see here the destructive wrath of God. And then we see the removal of the presence of God. And this is striking. Look what it says in chapter 10. I looked and behold on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim. There appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. Now we see here the cherubim returning from chapter 1. If you remember that uh, study, there are these awesome figures with wheels and they're going every which way directed by the Spirit. They have you know, a human face and a face of a lion and a face of an ox and, and a face of an eagle. And they're, 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 they're spectacular figures doing the Lord's bidding. They come back into the story, and it says, I went in before my, He went in before my eyes, the man with the linen. The cherubim was standing on the south side of the house where the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. The house was filled with a cloud. The court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So God's manifesting His glory, His presence, right there in the temple. All right? And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. When he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings." And I looked, verse 9, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub. The appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel, repeat of chapter 1. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions. Again, this, we see this in chapter 1, without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims, their spokes, their wings, the wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels that, had the, uh, that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And everyone had four faces. Uh, you know, the cherub, the human face, the lion, face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kibar Canal. So he ties it into chapter 1. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. When they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Now watch in verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So here's what I think is happening. This is a very complex passage. But these cherubim come to serve as sort of a chariot for the glory of God. And God 
makes his presence known there in the temple, and the, and the cherubim come down, and they bear God's glory away from the temple. And, and they're taking God away from the temple. Verse 20, These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kabar Canal, and I knew that they were uh, the cherubim. Now, uh, fast forward to uh, chapter 11, verse 1. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men. And I saw among them Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity, who give wicked counsel in this city, uh, who say the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and I said to, he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in the city, you have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, he's preaching to these people, these, these elders, these leaders who worship false gods. Your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and the city is the cauldron. You're being judged, this is God's wrath, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall uh, you be the meat in the midst of it. I shall judge you at the border of Israel. So in other words, he's saying, if you think you've gotten away with something because you're not dead right now, don't believe it. Judgment is coming for you. That's what he's saying to these elders. And then fast forward to verse... 22. Verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their chapter 11. The cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So they're bearing the glory of God here. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. And the vision that I'd seen went up from it. And I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. So here's the last thing Ezekiel sees. He sees these cherubim bearing God away from the temple to the east, to a mountain of the east. He, in, in other words, this is God saying, because of my people's idolatry, I am, I am taking my presence away. Very scary thing. This is the removal of the presence of God. But I want to close with this. What's Yahweh's response to this this idolatry, the, the people turning their back on him. We've seen his destructive wrath. We've seen the removal of his presence. But it ends, I want to end with the, the, the grace of future hope. There is some grace. There's some mercy in this passage. I want you to go back with me to chapter 11, verse 14. Because in verse 13, uh, as Ezekiel is experiencing God's judgment or seeing God's judgment, he says, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? In other words, if you keep pouring out your wrath, no one will survive. And look what it says in verse 14. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord to us, this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I remove them far off among the nations, Babylonian captivity, and though I scatter them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. I've been their temple. Even though they've been away from the temple, I've been their temple. I've been with them. Therefore say, 
Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. So here's what God's saying. This is important. You're far away from home. You're in Babylonian captivity, but I'm not done with you yet. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back to the land. And he says in verse 18, And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. What's he saying? He's saying... I'm going to bring my people back to Israel and, 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 and give them the, the land, the promised land back. They'll be able to, to dwell there and live there. But not only am I going to bring them back to the land, I'm going to do something in their heart. He says there, I'm, I'm going to give them a, 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 a heart of flesh. He's not speaking of signature. He's talking about a soft heart. Okay, A soft heart. He said in verse 19, I want to put a new spirit in them. In other words, I'm going to change them from the inside out so they are able to worship me and obey me. Now, this was partially fulfilled when the people of God came back. You can read about this in Nehemiah and Ezra, and the people got right with God and put away the idols and reestablished the Passover and the Sabbath and worshiped God in spirit and in truth and got right with God. There's great revival. So, there's partial fulfillment of these verses in the return of the people from captivity. But I believe this is ultimately a foreshadowing of the new covenant. Now, when we get to Ezekiel 33, 34 in that area, we're going to talk more about the new covenant. But God installs a new covenant through his son, Jesus Christ. And the new covenant is this. When you place your faith in the Messiah, Jesus, you are forgiven of your sins. You are brought into a relationship with God. And you are changed from the inside out. He, he gives you a new heart whereby you can begin to obey God and live for the Lord. And so in this passage, we see, even though there's devastating wrath and judgment, we see there is hope. God's not done with his people. He's going to rescue his people so that one day he can send a Messiah. And through that Messiah, we can have forgiveness and ultimate inner transformation. That's good news, isn't it? Now, think about this. God said, through your, your seed, Abraham, I want to bless all the peoples of the earth. If God would have allowed the people of Israel to be completely decimated and destroyed, he could not have kept that promise. But because he preserved the Jews, because he, he kept them together and brought them back to the promised land, one day he could keep that promise to Abraham by sending through his seed, Jesus Christ, the Messiah who would come and die on the cross for the sins of the world. Amen? And be a blessing for all. So this is a very striking passage. And I think the, 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 the takeaway, before I pray, and Jeff comes up and leads us through our prayer list, the, the, the takeaway is this. Examine your heart. Make sure that you're not disregarding the Lord. Because when you disregard the Lord, you are in effect... What? Turn your back to him. And this was very striking. I mean, there were booths of worship and statues and incense and, you know, weeping over Tammuz. I mean, some very striking stuff. But, you know, 
you can look very respectable on the outside, but in, in your heart, turn your back to God. Do you know that? Do you know you, can, do you know you can sit in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and disregard what God has to say to you? Or disregard some area that God's speaking to you in, some area he wants you to get right with him in, and you can just disregard him and keep it at arm's length and, 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 and just keep doing your thing. Uh, just because we, we look outwardly religious doesn't mean that in our heart we're not turning our back to him. And so we want to evaluate our own life and make sure that we're listening to the Lord, letting him have his way in our life. And we want to be grateful for the new covenant. That Jesus has come to forgive us and to give us a new heart whereby we can begin to live in a way that glorifies God. Amen. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.